Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Now, when we talk about faith, we have been using this pretty famous passage as the foundation of our of our series, and that is um, Hebrews 11.1, 1, and that is, everybody probably knows it from the kind of New King James Version, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so what we did is we, we spent some time breaking that down, and I like the way the NLT um, says it and how they... Um, how they have interpreted it and uh, put it in the New Living Translation Bible, because I think it, it matches the descriptions of the words very well. And it's this, I put it in your notes. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we, we cannot see. So faith is a conviction and a confidence that what we're preparing for um, and what we're hoping for is actually going to happen. So in week one, we dealt with possessing faith, coming to faith, like it's a noun. The second week, we dealt with uh, faith as a verb because your beliefs inform or fuel your actions. Every action, every word, everything that you do comes from and flows from an initial belief, a faith in something. That's why it's wildly important that we put our faith in the right thing if you believe a man if you believe um someone's interpretation about something more than you believe god you will be convinced and convicted that what they're saying is true if you put your faith in man you may be convinced and convicted that what they're saying is true but what you've done is you put your faith in the wrong thing There's a lot of people who are convicted and convinced that what they think is true, but it's not regardless of their conviction. If we put our faith in God, we have an assurance that everything that we believe about him from his word communicated to us through his spirit is actually true. So I want to go one step further this week, and I want to talk about um, one thing specifically that uh, changes when our faith is correctly rooted in Christ. How many have ever heard the statement, faith changes things? Ever heard that? Faith changes things. How many of you would agree with that? Faith changes things. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So, faith changes things. What things? That's the question. I'm a, I'm a kind of a detail-oriented, like digging to the weeds. You probably couldn't tell that after all these years of these messages and these notes. But I'm kind of a detail-oriented person because I want to understand fully exactly what the Scripture is communicating and how I can live it and follow God to the fullest. Bless you. <clears throat> so what changes? What exactly changes? I don't want us to be people who are are just making statements that are super general, although some of the gospel is general. Jesus died for everybody, right? The, 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 the sacrifice on the cross is available for everyone who believes. That is open to everyone, general statement. But when we get into things like this, faith changes things, what does it change exactly? It changes a lot of things, but today I want to focus on one. I have a I feel compelled to a deal to deal with one in particular during our time today. And I'm going to talk about three areas that it changes. Okay. So the first thing that faith changes that we're going to deal with today, number one in your notes is faith changes our perspective. 
<clears throat> faith changes our perspective. I'm going to read these six verses real quick. Second Corinthians 5, 14 through 20. It's the, the space we're going to land today. And the three points we talk about will come from this passage. All right. <clears throat> Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. <clears throat> in that passage, I want to, I want us to, to take a, uh, I'm going to break it up into three sections so we can look at something a little bit closer um, in the, in, in the idea of God changes our perspective and faith changes our perspective. So which perspective does it change? Letter A in your notes. The first perspective that it changes is it changes our perspective of life, our perspective of life. <clears throat> I want to go back and focus just on verse 15 real quick, and it's there in your notes. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. The part that I want to draw our attention to in that scripture right there is we no longer live for ourselves. Paul is very clear. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have come to faith. That faith is fueling this faith-filled life of action that you no longer are to live for yourself. Our perspective of life and the reason we are here and the reason we even exist has changed. Our perspective on life shifts. <clears throat> um, there's been a rise in what people are referring to as the intellectual atheists. A lot of people have, um, uh, who are, you know, very smart. They got more degrees than a thermometer. You know, they're, they're going around the world telling people that, um, you know, all of this is meaningless. I think it's funny that people find meaning in telling other people about meaninglessness. I think that's pretty funny. It's kind of oxymoron for me. They go through and tell people there's no point to all of this. You're just some random chance. You're just a product of your environment. There's some people who teach it. You're not even in control of your own decisions. It's just your biology and it's just your environment and the things that you grew up around. And once you're dead, you're dead. Um, this is all random chance. Nothing you do matters in the end. So what they encourage people to do is do whatever you think is good for you. Do whatever makes you happy in this moment. Whatever you perceive as good, do that thing. 
and they go and make uh, they, they, they fill these auditoriums and they give lectures sounding like they're very intelligent, but presenting a message that is ridiculous. Your life is not meaningless. We all know this as believers in Christ. But my question for people who think in this, in this frame of mind, I just want to do what is good for me. My question is this, what is good? How do we as people determine exactly what is good? How do we determine that? Um, Jill, can you do me a favor and unplug that rice cooker? <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> that thing on the, the steam is going to keep going until. And you can turn that little switch on the top too. There you go. Perfect. Thank you. <clears throat> um, how do we determine what is good? How do you know what is good? Most people in America have a idea of what is good that is borrowed from Christianity. Most people who look at, I want to be a good person. I don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want to kill somebody. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to steal from somebody. I don't want to lie. I don't want to cheat. I don't want to do all these things. There is no reference point outside of God for these things to be good. We used to think <clears throat> that good was self-serving before Christ. I just got to do what's good for me. I got to do what I think is good. I got to have my goodness on display. But once you come to Christ, that perspective changes. And through faith, we are reminded that only God is good. Only God's standard is truly good. If you are, if you know people who are unbelievers or you're an unbeliever in this room and you're trying to think, man, how do I determine what is good? There's a lot of people who will tell you that society dictates what is good, that our leaders, our elected officials, the people based upon what they want and how they protest and march and make their voices heard in their government, they, they determine what is good for everybody else. That, that, um, definition of good doesn't fly and the reason it doesn't fly is history in the old testament there was a there was a a group of people a nation of people known as the canaanites and a lot of people who are atheists bring up the canaanites because they say god wiped them out completely how could god be good if he wiped out an entire group of people an entire nation of people how could he be good if he did that the reason that he wiped them out is because the nation of Canaan was all about child sacrifice. They worshiped a God named Moloch, and Moloch was an idol that had bronze hands that was extended in front of him. And either in his lap with a platform or they'd cut out the midsection of the idol and they would light him on fire. So that until the point where those brass hands that were out in front of the idol would glow because they were so hot. They would convince parents of young infants in the, in, the, in, in the country to give their children over, and they would lay them on Moloch's hands as a sacrifice until they burned alive, until they stopped screaming and they died. The nation was so corrupt and they knew that the parents would hear the screaming of the children and they would want to come rescue them. So what, they, what, what the government officials of, 
the society who deemed that this was a good thing, they got drummers to stand around the idol and beat the drums when they would do child sacrifice to drown out the screams of the infant. They determined that sacrificing infants was good. Was that good? No. Even though their society and their leaders and their religion all said that that was good, we can all look here and agree today that was not good. God sent them prophet after prophet who gave them warning after warning and told them, cut this out. They refused to. And God's patience lasted 400 years. You're not going to listen to this guy. I'll send you another one. You're not going to listen to this message. I'll send you another one. You're not going to listen to this message. I'll send it a different way. And they constantly rejected Christ or, or rejected God's prophets and his word to stop murdering these infants. So guess what he did? Wipe them out. His standard of good is far beyond ours. We could all think of easily bring up the, uh, you know, not too, not too distant from, from the time we're sitting in now. The German leaders decided it was a good idea to try to exterminate the Jewish race. Hitler repeatedly is recorded as thinking that he was actually doing something good. And everybody around him, all the yes men, all the people were saying, yes, it's a good thing to do. And we're going to carry out this, um, this horrific plan because they deemed that is good. But when we deem something as good apart from God, it does not mean it's good. He is the standard of good. He is the one who gives us the instruction through his word, through his spirit, through his conviction on what really is good. Our culture today celebrates those who demand compliance to selfish wishes, no matter how destructive they might be, because they think this is a good thing for me. This is a good way for me to live. This is a good thing for me to participate in. This is good for me to do this. I don't care what you say. This is good for me. And goodness has gone just to the person to decide what is good for them. And you have been given that right. But my friends, if you are choosing what's good for you, you put your faith in the wrong thing. <clears throat> this leads me to a conclusion about our friends who are atheists in our country and around the world. I don't believe that anyone is really an atheist. Now you can say, what do you mean? There's people that announce, announce themselves as atheists. You know, they, they, they put in their Twitter bio atheist, you know, like they're, they're, their names on social media are the biggest atheist you've ever seen or whatever. You know what I mean? How are they not really atheists? Because most atheists, if given the, the opportunity you ask them the question, which I, um, there's a, a gentleman named Frank Turek who goes around all over the country and talks to people in college. And he asks them, um, he presents a gospel presentation based on science and um, reason and rationale. He asks them, uh, the people who are not Christians, if I could convince you and give you proof today that Jesus was real and that Christianity was real, would you become a Christian? And the vast majority of them say no. Even if they were convinced that it's real, they would still not choose to serve God. Why? 
because almost every atheist that you know is in love with a particular sin that they have refused to release. It's not the fact that they don't really believe in God. They just don't want the God that would correct them and change their standard of goodness. Their faith is in themselves, their own understanding. And that's what Proverbs tells us not to do. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge God. Let him direct your paths. And in that path, he directs you to what is good. Our job as the church in a crazy culture is to stand for what is truly good. And historically, the church is at its best when it stands against the culture that is running towards destruction for the good of the culture. Why are you standing in my way for me running off this cliff and destroying my life? Because I love you enough to tell you the truth. What you're pursuing you think is good, but it's not. God is the standard of good. And when you come to faith in him, your perspective on life changes. Number, the second perspective that changes, let her be in your notes, <clears throat> is our perspective of others, our perspective of others. <clears throat> this one really got me. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. As I read this as I, during my study this week and specifically yesterday, I, this was a fascinating exercise for me, very convicting for me. That word evaluate. So we have stopped evaluating, evaluating. The definition of that word evaluate, according to the Webster's Dictionary, and I put it in your notes, and it's the next line there, you know, it's to determine the significance, worth, or condition of, usually by careful appraisal or study. To determine the significant worth or condition of, usually by careful appraisal and study. So when Paul is saying that we have stopped evaluating people from a human point of view, he is saying that we are not supposed to determine their significance, their worth, or their condition by my fleshly side. We are not supposed to determine other people's significance, worth, or condition through my flesh. <clears throat> how, do we how do we determine the worth of other people that we encounter? Most people would look and try to, if you're in the, especially in the corporate world that I've been in for the last several years, you'll find people who are looking to make relationships and to make friends with people who are going to help them. And if you can't help them, they may say hi to you in the hallway or in the break room, but they're not going to spend a lot of time with you because they are only looking to connect with people who will help them get where they want. This is not reserved to corporate America, but I have experienced it firsthand in this, in this area of, our, of, of work in our country. If you are evaluating the worth of someone else by how they can help you, you are evaluating them through the human side of your mind. We are not determining their worth 
from a human point of view, what you can do for me, how you can satisfy my desire, how you can satisfy what I think is good. Our, our design as Christians, our command as Christians is to determine someone's significance or their worth, not by our mind, but by how God sees them. Kaufman's commentary of the Bible um, gave such a great uh, insight to the scripture. I put it in your notes and, I'll, and it's the next on your notes too. And it's this, the, um, the new manner of life for Christians follows the principles laid down here. They no longer measure. They no longer measure men by human standards of race, natural gifts, social standing, or possessions. No sooner had Paul written this than he remembered how before his conversion, he measured the Christ himself by those very standards. And he had once confessed and, rep and repudiated or repent. He categorizes the, that list of characteristics as human thinking on purpose. Believers are in Christ are no longer to measure the worth or the value of other people by the human standards of race, talents, where they are on the social ladder, or by the things they own or don't own. That's what the world does. I got to figure out how you can help me get to where I want to go. And that's the only reason I find you valuable at this moment. You ever met anybody like that? Ever been treated like that by somebody? And once they use you to get what they want, all of a sudden you didn't hear from them anymore. If that happened, they judged your worth based upon a human point of view the selfish flesh side of them. They're not looking at you how God looks at you. This is just another in the thousand different reasons that Christians stand against the horrific act of abortion. <clears throat> we stand against it because we're not judging the worth of a life by my convenience. We're judging the worth of a life by how God has designed us and created us. The First Choice Pregnancy Center uh, Resource Center gave statistics new for this year. I'm going to put them in your notes. Only 1.5% of abortions are due to rape and incest. I put this in here because this is the main argument from people who are pro-abortion, right? They're like, what about the life of the mother? What about rape? What about incest? Those make up 1.5% of all abortions. That simple math leads us to this. Next on your notes, 98.5% of abortions are due to convenience. Convenience. What do you mean, Matt, about convenience? I don't want that child right now. I don't want to be a parent right now. I don't want to interrupt my life or my career with this child. People who fight for others to have a right to have abortion are wanting them to determine the worth of another human being based upon their issue of good and their convenience. 
when you choose to murder a child in the womb, you have determined that the significance and worth of this child is at zero. I want to rid myself of this interruption to my life, to my career. I want to rid myself of this unfortunate consequence from a reckless sexual encounter. Believers in Christ look at the child and go, that child is worth something. There is worth prescribed to the child. There is significance given to the child because God said, I knit you together in your mother's womb. He has designed every single child to have value. Do you see how that act is supremely selfish? Do you see how that act is judging the value of someone else through a human mind instead of looking at it through the eyes of a God who created you? The reason that we stand so boldly against this, this particular horrific issue is because we don't evaluate people by our human mind's worth. We evaluate people as they are made in the image of God. True faith in God leads us to deep compassion. Next on your notes. True faith in God leads us to deep compassion because that is the nature of Jesus. That is the nature of Jesus. There are dozens of places in the Gospels where this is on display, but I just picked one, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. So here Jesus is moving from town to town. He is healing people. He is, um, he is he's casting out demons. He's doing all of these miracles. And here they are still following him. And they're not getting the message that he's delivering. They're not understanding it. If that were me, and I had done all these different miracles, and had all these people following me, they still weren't getting the message that we were, um, they weren't getting the message I was trying to present. I would look at them and be like, what does it matter with you? What, are you knuckleheaded? Like, are you listening? Like, come on, like, let's, let's get it together. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't look at these people who are not understanding what he's saying even after witnessing all the miracles, he's not looking at them with any ridicule, with any condemnation. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not frustrated. He's not saying things like, why don't you get it yet? That's what I would say. These people, they can't do anything for me. That's the human way of thinking. They have no value to me because they can't do anything for me. I'm out here trying to help them and they still don't get the help. This is worthless. This is pointless. He doesn't say any of that. 
the perspective of our Savior was to see those who are suffering, lost, hopeless, and destitute, and not see them as outcasts, but see them with compassion. We prioritize kingdom and God's perspective over everything. Race, religion, money, influence, anything. If we see other people as a fill-in-the-blank with an adjective Christian or fill-in-the-blank with an adjective person, we are not viewing them how God views them. If you view people through a lens of race, a black person, a white person, a brown person, fill in the blank of a mean person. What we're doing is we're categorizing them based on what we think and how we see it. God's not looking at you like that. He doesn't look at me like that. He sees a person who is struggling, who needs help, who needs freedom, who needs grace, who needs deliverance, who needs an open door, who needs compassion. You walk out on the streets with Thrive and go, another stinking homeless guy. You walk, you're driving home today and you see the guy on the corner with a sign who's asking for money. It's another homeless dude, another addict begging for stuff. We're not looking at people with his view. We're looking at them through our human understanding. Because the flesh side of you wants to immediately label somebody so you can put them in a group so you can move on with your life. But Jesus doesn't do that. He shows compassion to everyone. Because he sees them as the people that he created who have value and a need for him. He changes our perspective on life. He changes our perspective on others. And the last thing, letter C in your notes, he changes our perspective on purpose, on our purpose. <clears throat> he changes our perspective of our purpose. Let's read those last three verses of Matthew, or I mean, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 18 through 20. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Passage is very clear. Our purpose on earth to love God with everything we've got, serve those around us, and serve those outside of us. We are tasked with taking the message of the gospel to the world, the message that people can be reconciled to God, and we are his ambassador making his appeal to the world. That's your purpose. taking the message of the gospel and helping disciple people. There it is in plain language. Now, how that happens, happens in several different ways. A lot of people think that their creative gift is their purpose. 
A lot of people think maximizing and being excellent at what I do is my purpose. A lot of people think that um, doing something and uh, that, that they can see as like a passion of theirs is their purpose. But what we find is none of that in that passage. Your creative gift, the excellence that you employ trying to, make, to maximize that gift in your life, that gift is merely a vehicle to carry the message. The vehicle is not the focus. The message you're carrying inside of that vehicle is the focus. <clears throat> Should you work on your creativity? Absolutely. Should you be excellent in everything you put your hand to? Absolutely. If you're someone who does business, you should blow the business thing up. If you're a singer, you should become the best singer you possibly can. If what, Fill in the blank with whatever you're good at. You should be the best of it. Why? Because it will give you access into more places so that you can deliver the message of the gospel to people who need to be reconciled with him. That is your purpose. <clears throat> I did a, a funny little exercise this past week. I Googled what is the purpose of life. And I don't know if, if, if you've ever done that. It'll make your head hurt. Just don't do it. Trust me. Just don't do it. It'll make your head hurt. <clears throat> I read answers from psychologists, people who were uh, in behavioral psychology with PhDs, college professors, new age gurus. Uh, university science centers and a different university. I went and, and these are answers from, from those people. Like you think, oh man, these guys are got a lot of clout, a lot of credential, right? Here's what they said. Uh, one per one, one place, a university said purpose can be connected to vocation. So they didn't say that your job or your meaningful work in life was your purpose, but somehow that would be connected to it. And if you get connected to that, maybe you could figure out what your purpose is. The next one uh, was kind of funny to me. It said, uh, this was the PhD guy. Uh, you already know the meaning of life. You just don't know that you know the meaning of life. <laughs> My question was, how do you know that I don't know, that you don't know, that I don't know, that we all don't know what we don't know? <clears throat> This is a good one too. Uh, it was, <laughs> I had to go back and read it and go, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, uh, we exist to exist. We exist, we exist to exist. And his next statement was, we exist to keep existing. It's like, why, why am I reading this? Why did I Google this, right? <clears throat> My favorite one was from a new age guru who said, anyone who tells you there is certainty around anything, including the meaning of life, is wrong because there is no certainty. Everything is uncertain. And my question to him was, how are you certain that there is no certainty? And he sat there with his weird clothes and his long beard and everybody went, hmm, because they looked at it as profound. Because their faith and what they're chasing is a person and not the God who created them. This is the one that frustrated me. <clears throat> There's a young woman named Amber who in the article, this is the quote from the article, 
was raised by, quote, purpose-driven parents who were right-wing Christians. You know where this is going. Amber said, my mom had us involved in stuff all the time, all within that conservative Christian bubble. The family and community fueled a strong sense of purpose in Amber. Her quote, we were supposed to be a good Christian, a role model, and a blessing to other people. Let's pause right there. A good Christian, what do they do? Love God and love others. Take the message of hope and life to everybody around them. A good role model? Stay away from trouble and all this kind of stuff and away from addictions and robbing people and stealing things and doing stupid stuff. Being a good role model and a blessing to other people. I thought, it's pretty good. I think those are good things to attain, right? But then the article continued. The trouble is that the purpose of things like this is only to make other people more like the ones who were teaching. Amber disagreed with the Christian moral positions of her church and the Bible and discovered another faith, see, something else to put their faith in that would affirm her immoral lifestyle. I read this and I thought, you accurately described faith. Amber was looking for somewhere else besides the Bible, besides Christianity, besides Christ to put her faith in, because what she ultimately wants is what she wants. But the whole premise of the article is 100, maybe even 1,000% wrong. The goal of Christians isn't to make you to be like me. If all of you were like me, the world would be wildly boring i'm a biscuit with no flavor <laughs> i tell my wife all the time you are the seasoning in my life without you i would just be bland there's not even any there might be a little butter from the south a little butter on that biscuit but there's not much else that's about it she's all this she's all of it right like all the she's got all the spice for my life i love it the goal isn't to make you like me the goal is to make you in my image. I'm sitting here telling you what the word of God says so that you can be shaped in his image. The goal isn't to have you look like me. God forbid. The goal is for you to look like him. Most people view Christianity as a behavior modification. That's not what it is. Your behavior will change, but only after you come to a real convincing conviction, a faith that what Jesus said is true. <clears throat> when we come to faith in Jesus, he changes our perspective on our purpose. We follow his lead and he leads us to ultimate fulfillment. If you are someone who's here today who has trouble valuing others, you have trouble determining what your purpose is in life, having trouble determining 
why you're even here in the first place with life. We are typically com uh, um, compelled to have you go back and look at what you believe and figure it out. Or, or, or get better at doing this or get better at thinking this way. I want you to go back to what you are convinced is true. And if that is Jesus and you are really, there is a conviction in you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by him. If that conviction is alive in you, then these things will begin to change. Your perspective on life will change because he comes inside. His spirit fills you when you become a believer and he moves you from death to life, from that old way of human thinking to a new way of thinking that is alive and powerful and rich. How, how did I not know that my very perspectives were rooted in my faith? Because what I'm convinced is true changes how I see everything. If you're someone who looks and says, man, there's gaps in my life. I, I'm listening to you talk and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some things. Man, I have not treated people very well. I have not treated them um, in the way they need to. I've, I've been kind of flipping about the subject of life and my existence, um, about my purpose. I kind of wander away from it. I don't want you to be like, I don't want you just to just to be like, God, I'm sorry, and then leave. I want you to examine what you believe. And if you find yourself lacking in, a, in, in, in an area of faith with God, there is a very simple prayer that was prayed to Jesus directly. Lord, help my unbelief. Could it be a discipline issue? Sure. Could it be something that God just wants you to, 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 to flex that, that um, discipline muscle on? Sure, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. But we cannot disregard taking a hard look at what do we really believe? What do I have a conviction on? I'm convinced is true. Because he has all the truth all the goodness, all the fulfillment that you as his creation are designed to capture.